We're going to be reading today in Acts chapter 7, beginning verse 51, reading through chapter 8, verse 4. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word declares, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets do your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus stand at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses of a young uh, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Last week, we looked at um, a significant portion of Scripture, um, 51 verses worth as we worked through Stephen's sermon. And we saw the uh, presentation, the defense, if you will, of the accusations against him, but of course, wrapped up in that defense by the direction of the Holy Spirit, we have a very powerful accusation where he goes through and he looks at these principal characters that the Jews elevated and claimed to be adherents to. Of men like Moses and the law, of course. Uh, we have others that are going to be listed here. There's going to be Joshua. There's going to be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So he's going to cover the history of Israel. But in the midst of that, he wants us to note a couple of things. First of all, that each one of these principal characters in Jewish history had to deal with a rebellious nation whether that be their wife, in the case of Abraham, who wanted to take God's uh, plan and her own direction, uh, whether it be some of the sons of Jacob um, who sold their own brother into slavery, uh, whether you look at uh, the Moses, of course, and the people even before Moses' uh, Sinai Mount uh, experience where he was wanting to deliver his people, but the people didn't want him. And so God puts him out in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, brings him back, and even then we have a rebellious people. And this culminated in Stephen's message as he rehearsed how this rebelliousness, that while we look at the principal characters of faith in the Hebrews' history, and we want to emphasize them, um, Stephen wants to remind them that by and large, most of Israel has been in rebellion. They rebelled against God. They rebelled against the leaders God put over them. And they wanted to go their own way. And, 
having crossed the Red Sea, and uh, they very quickly end up fashioning a, a golden calf and worship it as the God that delivered them out of Egypt. And we see this, this how quickly uh, Israel turns away from God, rejects the leadership God has established, and rejects God himself, and even violates the law. And so, in his conclusion, he very rapidly brings it from, that's how they responded to these principal characters. The characters you elevate today. Moses, the prophets, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these men, Joshua brought you into the land. When you look at these men, and you look at the history of Israel You all want to uh, applaud those individuals, but you forget that you were rebellious against them as a people. Historically, the people of Israel were uh, not model citizens. Um, Even with David, uh, how quickly they went after Absalom and how few there be that that followed after uh, David and remained loyal to him. And, And all through these characters of faith that we look at, that we elevate, that we talk about, that we try to compare ourselves to or live up to, um, Stephen makes a very pointed declaration that that's not who you are. And of course, the key reference that he uses is that there would be one greater than Moses, and Moses himself talked about him. And by rejecting this statement by Moses, you today are rejecting Moses just as much as the Israelites of that day rejected Moses and ended up dying in the wilderness 40 years. Because you rejected the prophet, the holy one, the just one, that Moses told you to listen to. And so here you are, claiming to, or attacking me, saying that I am the one who is speaking against, blaspheming against Moses, blaspheming against the law, blaspheming against God and against the temple, And you're the ones who are disobeying him. Because here's the one that Moses said you're supposed to look for. And when you see him, you're supposed to listen to him, obey him. And instead you murdered him. So who are the real blasphemers in the room? Well, that's a pretty slap in your face kind of end of a message, isn't it? You're the murderers. You're the blasphemers. You're the ones who are resisting God. You are the ones who are not keeping the law. You are the ones who are resisting the Holy Spirit just as your forefathers did. Your forefathers aren't Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. Those aren't your forefathers. Because those are the forefathers of faith. Those are the forefathers led by the Spirit of God. Your forefathers are those who rejected them and rebelled against them and went after false gods and disobeyed the law. Those are your forefathers. The ones who persecuted the prophets and murdered them. And now you have persecuted the capital P prophet, Jesus Christ. The just one. The one who is superior to Moses. For Moses spoke of him and said, Let, when he comes... Listen to him. Stop listening to the law and listen to him. He is the fulfillment of all. Well, you can imagine the response. So, we read 51 through 53, those uh, three verses that we studied last week as kind of introduction to this week, so we can see just how um, pointed Stephen's defense is. It turns into a sermon very quickly. 
and he wants to apply it to them directly. He doesn't do it in flowery, soft language. He does it uh, in a very accusative voice. You are the ones. You are the ones. You resist. You disobey. You murdered. And you don't keep the law. You are the ones who are guilty this day. Not Stephen. I don't stand before you guilty. You stand before God guilty. Whenever we're confronted with someone who's going to challenge us on that and say, you stand before God guilty, we expect them to cry, sob, bow their head, drop to their knees, and acknowledge it, and ask for forgiveness. Right? Isn't that what you expect to happen? That's what people expected to happen about 300 years ago. Because that's what people did. That was called the Great Awakening 250 years ago. In this country even. But confronted with a statement like that and confronted with uh, a direct thing, your sin has got you over the fires of hell and one flame will extinguish the threat of your life and you will drop into those eternally and you will deserve it. That's a paraphrase of Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. At least in terms of the judgment narrative of that, of that sermon. But that's not where that sermon ended. He also talked about that it's time to place your faith in the deliverer. That one who can take you from being that disgusting, pitiful spider that is hanging by a thread over the intense flames of eternal uh, hell and... That one is Jesus, and he extended that offer of deliverance. And people did respond. But that's not the response that Stephen got. The response that that Peter got just a few months earlier was what we like. We like that response when people uh, are cut to the heart and say, What shall we do? That's the response we all want. But right away in the book of Acts, we are confronted with the fact that there is another response that we don't like. And I just want to share with you, this is a response that I find more normative in our day. This is the way people respond these days, more so than the other. In fact, to tell you the truth, even those who are not antagonistic to the gospel, even those that aren't uh, opposed to it, even they don't come to Christ with a shattered soul over their sin. They'll come to Christ in a, well, I'll try this out and let's see if this is real kind of attitude. I'll check it out. Uh, kind of a, well, I don't want to, you know, I want to have eternal life and, and uh, the, this Christianity thing might work for me. And even those people who are receiving Christ, I seldom see So rarely I can't hardly remember the last person who was just shattered about their sin and its weight and its consequence and how deserving they were of God's judgment because we have disconnected ourselves from it in our homes because we don't discipline with judgment, with severity. 
Um, as we did in the olden days, we don't call sin, sin. We don't call evil, evil. It's an addiction. It's a uh, mental illness. It's a problem. It's never sin. It's how you're born. It's my genetics. It's never sin. Do you ever notice that? It's never just plain wrong. We excuse ourselves. We find uh, there's got to be a medicine that'll take it away. Um, it's never wrong. The Bible doesn't approach it that way. And the preachers of the Bible don't approach it that way. But that's how our society does. And so um, Stephen now, with a very powerful sermon of comparable nature to Peter's, and if you took those two sermons and you look back at, at Acts chapter 2 and you go, well, you know, Peter goes through and he talks about the historical things, so going back to Joel, he goes back and talks about uh, the words of the prophet speaking of Christ. He he speaks directly to the people and says, he quotes from the Psalms, from David. He also then points his finger at them and says, you murdered him, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. And the people respond, what shall we do? And thousands are saved. Stephen, with a comparable message, going all the way back, defending himself a bit there, and now approaching these men with this same declaration. This one that Moses told you to listen to, you resisted, you rejected, and you murdered. And in so doing, you are the ones not obeying the laws of Moses. And here's their response, verse 54. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We pray that you might take this time now as we look into the results of a message spoken by one of these seven. We might contemplate the fact that we must see this as one of the probable results of our preaching, of our proclamation of your truth, that we might have the courage to preach nonetheless, proclaim and to confront people with their sin and with the gospel message. Lord, we pray that you might work in our lives and our minds and our hearts Uh, this hour through your word and by your spirit that you might guard what our time from distraction and from error and that you might work mightily in our midst to your glory honor and praise and it's in your name we pray amen well not the same result in fact exactly the opposite result and we are going to have some names named here of maybe some of those that were uh party to it and helping it along and we find that they were gnashing at their teeth. They were cut in the heart just as the other group. And it says they heard these things. They were cut to the heart. And we go back to chapter 2. The response again is the same. Um, it says that they were cut to their heart. Wow. So the, the immediate result is the same. That's in chapter 2 verse 37. Now I heard this. They were cut to the heart. So to Peter's message on on the day of Pentecost, um, they are cut to the heart and they respond by asking the question, what shall we do? 
And we're like, that's great. Well, these people are also cut to the heart, which means that they recognize their own guilt. They, they had to come to mental agreement with the statements that Stephen were ma- was making. They agree with that. And it cut to them heart. There was this conviction. There was this, this recognition of guilt that I stand here as, and what he's saying is true of me. But what a different outcome, huh? One asks the question, what must we do? In other, in, what, what, what's our response before God? What does God want us to do? And here, rather than asking that question, here's what comes out of these people's mouth. It says that they gnashed at him with their teeth. Two very powerful messages, both with the same immediate effect of cutting people to their heart. Uh, Something we want to avoid today, which is horrible because it's a necessary thing for the good side to happen. For men to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? They have to be cut to their heart. They have to have a sense of their own guilt. They have to realize they are horrible sinners, deserving of judgment, and must uh, bend the knee before God and beg His forgiveness and and accept His one way of delivering Him from that. Here they're cut to the heart, and now instead of asking the question out of their mouth, what must I do to be saved? Um, their statement is, I'm going to gnash at you with my teeth. That is, I'm going I'm to just bare my teeth to you. That is, I'm going to make you my enemy. I don't want to acknowledge that what you are saying uh, requires a response from me that is humbling, but rather they come to the message and to God with a pride that says, how dare you say that about me? How dare you accuse me of that? All the while with their teeth clenched and born. How dare you? You can see the anger, the pride in their response. And then we see God's interaction. God's intervention, if you will. Rather than discouraged, downbeaten, and quieted, God comes upon Stephen. He has preached a powerful message. He has raised a finger and pointed it clearly at those, and they have felt the weight of it. They have been pierced with his words, They cannot speak against it. So all they can do is reject it, deny it, gnash at it with anger and unbelief and pride. And Stephen doesn't quiet down and God doesn't let him. God doesn't let him just walk away and say, well, your blood blood be on your own heads, you heard the truth, and now I'm out of here. God comes and now intervenes. in a very powerful way, preparing Stephen for what is about to occur. It says that Stephen is there listening to them respond negatively and he immediately stops and is now confronted with a powerful vision. It says he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. I want to share with you that both Stephen and Peter saw 
the glory of God from two different perspectives. Peter saw the glory of God from the perspective of men coming to Christ by the thousands. And that is to the glory of God. That is the miracle of salvation, of of the working of Christ in men's lives, that they respond by faith and he delivers them and, and they receive the word with faith gladly and they accept baptism and they and they want to study the word and be immersed in it and we can't get together once a week for an hour um, they're immersed in it day to day hungry and thirsting for not entertainment but for meat for stuff to chew on for truth Oh, the glory of that. Stephen, though, also has an opportunity to see the glory of God. He sees his Lord. Whether Stephen had seen Christ on earth, we can debate because the Bible doesn't really tell us if his, he had interaction with Christ in the months earlier, years earlier in Christ's ministry. It is very probable that he had some uh, contact with him, but he sees Christ at the right hand of God. And he immediately invites everyone else to see what he sees. His, his statement is very challenging. He says, Look! <laughs> It's a this is a this is what you can see too. His statement is not I see, it says, look, you look, look up there. And by the way, one of these men is going to be confronted with that same vision not so very long from now. Because Saul of Tarsus is going to finally be made to look. And when Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus, says, Why are you kicking against the goads? One of the goads that God has used in his life is Stephen telling him, Look! (laughs) That's all he says. Look! Look at heaven! Look at Jesus! There he is! He's right by the throne of God! Look! They don't look. We have a song, Look and Live. My brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. And Stephen's response is not to keep it to himself and to say, oh, wow, look, I get to see this. But rather, he says, you, look, I see the heaven open, the Son of Man stands at the right hand of God. Can't you see that? And of course, Luke has already explained to us that Stephen's vision has been powerfully adapted by the Holy Spirit to see what he's seeing. The one that these are resisting, Stephen hasn't resisted at all. And God gives him this vision of heaven and Stephen only wants to share it. Look! Look! And rather than looking up, look at the response. And this is perfect because um, (laughs) this is just like what you would expect from a bunch of children that don't want to hear something. Um, and in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
a series of actions, none of which draws them to look. He invites them. He wants them to see what he sees. He wants them to know what he knows. He wants them to receive what he has received. Look. Just would you look. There are many times that in frustration you just want to shake people and say, can't you get it? Just look. Can you just read this thing? And not just for unbelievers, I mean for Christians. What is wrong with you? Look at yourself through God's Word and you have to conclude that you've got some things to take care of in your life. It's not right. It's not where it should be. It's not what God wants. You're not glorifying God. You need to look. You just want, what is wrong with you? Why can't you see this? And I'm going to tell you why they can't see this. Even Christians. Because they don't want to. What do these men do? La, 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 la. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Right? I don't want to look. I don't want to listen. I don't want to hear. And instead, I'm going to become a mob. And I'm going to attack you. This is the response. This is the response of Christians to that kind of preaching. I mean, let, let's just get serious. If I started naming off sins and pointing a finger, um, we, we wouldn't have any people left here that would be willing to tolerate that. Let alone try it at Calvary Chapel or Legacy. Start walking. Well, you'd empty out those buildings in a hurry, wouldn't you? I don't want to hear that. And so I'm going to cry out with a loud voice so that no one else can hear it. I'm going to stop my ears. I'm not going to let my ears even hear the words anymore. And they run at him. Altogether, it says, they throw him out of the city because that's where the activity would have gone on. They don't do it within the region that they're at. They're not at the Temple Mount at this point. They're at the high priest's house. And they would have thrown him outside, which isn't very far away. Um, it's one of those houses that backs up to the wall. And so they would have thrown him out there. And they begin the process of stoning him. Um, which is not a delicate thing to do. These are not pebbles and rocks. Um, the accusers take him and they force him down. And uh, the main accuser would pick up one rock as large as they could. And the first drop is on the head. The attempt anyway. So when it talks about his accusers, or his witnesses, the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Um, Saul giving the authority, the consent to the activity. Um, he has been, he is the agent, if you will, of the, of the leadership of Israel permitting this to happen. And so he is going to provide the authority for them to act. They lay their cloaks there to involve themselves in a very physical activity, very direct. It is not from a distance they are casting stones. This is not with a sling like David and Goliath. They are going to come up and they're going to drop these rocks right on them, having thrown him down a, an incline into the Kidron Valley. Because they didn't want to hear that you can look and live. 
if you'll simply admit your sin. So, there he is. He's in the midst of being stoned. And he calls out to God and recognizes that this is his end. He doesn't say, Lord, keep me from being stoned. Lord, help me be comfortable. Lord, uh, can't you, don't you see what's going on here? No, his response is, Lord Jesus, I'm ready. I'm ready. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's ready for this. He, he's, he's prepared. He has seen the glory of God. He has seen his Savior in heaven. This is where he wants to be. And he says, receive my spirit. I'm ready. And right away, right, right before I leave, I have one last request. A request, by the way, that's going to, we're going to look at its transition here in a little bit. My request is don't lay this sin against them. Do not charge them with this sin. There's plenty of other sin they can be charged with. But Stephen's desire to cry out in his last words reveals his heart. And the heart that is required of us to be of this man's nature. And that is fundamentally what he wanted was for these men who were killing him to be saved. That was his goal. And he didn't want his death to further (laughs) determine God's wrath on them. Rather, this kind of a statement isn't just that he wants them to have a free ride for this act. No, what he is essentially asking is, Lord, don't make this keep them from accepting you down the road. Don't put them in such a condition now that they are not ever going to hear the gospel again and not going to give them an opportunity to respond again. Don't hold this impetuous act today that they don't have any more opportunity to receive you down the road. That is, in essence, the spirit within the don't charge them with this sin. That would put them under condemnation that there is no hope for them at any further point in their lives. And by the way, we have some scriptures that do tell us that there is a point where people can't come to Christ. Jesus referred to an unforgivable sin. Hebrews refers to the point that the gospel is of no use to anyone anymore. So we have at least two references to the fact that, that for some people on earth, there is a point where there, will, there is no return. There is no coming to Christ. Um, we have Revelation describe that, that that there's a point that no one will come to Christ anymore. So we have multiple references in Scripture that there is a breaking point in God's mercy where men are condemned. They stand condemned without hope. Um, Most of the passages that talk about false teachers never describe a hope for them. They are condemned already, Paul says. So don't even argue with them. Don't engage them. They are condemned already. But Stephen's prayer is, Lord, for these before me, some who were from the synagogue of the freemen, some were from the priestly house in the ruling region of Jerusalem, 
And of course, Saul himself is there, and there's priests there. And he, and he looks around, he says, Oh, Lord, um, don't put these men under that kind of a curse on account of their slaughter of this man. And that is a very different spirit than you see in a lot of Christianity today. And I want to reference it a little bit. In social media, when we see Muslim men in the Sudan burning Christians in their churches, doing despicable acts and just animalistic behavior towards children and women, we pray for the Christians who are already gone. By the time you see the video, they're in glory. Why are you praying for them? Stephen didn't pray for the apostles. He didn't pray for the other six of the seven. He didn't pray for the Christians. He's praying for the persecutors. Why isn't the church praying for the terrorists, for these Muslims, for these Hindus in India that are ramping up persecution against the church? Why is our prayer limited to praying for the saints who are suffering? I'm not saying you shouldn't. And you hear me pray. I prayed that this morning. Where is our heart to say, Lord, have your people die in such a fashion that their testimony penetrates the consciences of these individuals who are perpetrating these acts against them. And essentially, that's what Stephen means. Don't charge them with this sin to such a degree that they are then hopelessly the recipients of your wrath. Don't consider this their final rejection. Is that your final answer? Lord, don't put them in that condition. And Stephen's heart is revealed in his last words. And his last words are, Lord, please. I'm praying for these men, even as they are killing me. And what is the impact of that? Many priests get saved, the Bible tells us. And one of these men is going to become a sufferer himself for Christ and a great missionary for the church, opening up the gospel to much of the Roman Empire. And one of those goads is this prayer, Stephen. Look. And instead of looking, Saul closed his eyes, closed his ears, screamed, ran at him, picked, looked down the hill. And by the way, that's what you have to do when you stone someone. They throw him down incline. You're not looking up at all. You're looking for a big rock, uh, and you're looking down. 
Down, 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 down. Stephen says, look, up! (laughs) They're screaming and looking down. But the impact is there. It's not immediate. In fact, we get into chapter 8 and we find what's the next response is that now that we've taken down one of the seven, and we're going to talk about the seven a lot more next week. Uh, we can talk about Philip the Evangelist. Um, we got one of the seven down. There's 12 apostles. There's seven of, of these leaders. So we've got 19 and we've taken out one of them. So what do they do? Saul is going to not just consent to one death, and I don't know why there's a chapter division here, when obviously verse 1 of chapter 8 is intimately connected to what just happened. So now Saul was consenting to his at Stephen's death. He gave the authority. And great persecution arose against the church which is at Jerusalem. Remember, that's the only place they were. They were at Jerusalem. They were on the Temple Mount. They are at Solomon's porch. Everywhere we see them, even house to house, is Jerusalem. If you want to get healed, you had to come to Jerusalem. If you wanted to hear the gospel, you had to come to Jerusalem. Over and over again, the activity we've seen has been focused in on Jerusalem. And now um, Saul has got the church pretty much bottled up in one city. This is an opportunity to put the end to her right away. And so he starts going after them, and they're meeting house to house, and so he's going to go after them house to house. It says in verse 3, He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. We found out later from Paul's own words that many of them were then killed, were convicted. I say, what a tragedy. We find that perhaps Saul became an agent of God's desire to spread the gospel way before he accepted Christ as his Savior. Because in the midst of this havoc that Saul is putting on the church there in Jerusalem, are some wonderful words. And the wonderful word that keeps cropping up is the word scattered. You might say, well, that's not wonderful. I mean, the big word that we saw in the early church was one accord. With one accord, with one mind, with one accord, with one heart, with one... Uh, they, they were just with as one. They were just this body, this the singular unit. And now this man comes and wreaks havoc upon them and they are hunting them down with a house-to-house search. And he has all the authority of the, of the high uh, priest and the Sanhedrin. He's chasing them down. He's going to eradicate them as his plan. They're throwing them in prison. They have now Stephen as the example uh, that has made a declaration. He saw Christ at the right hand of God, claiming to be God. And so it says that the church scattered. And I want you to look at where they went. They didn't go over the whole world yet. 
It says they scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And of course, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we know exactly what Christ commanded them to do, right? You'll be witnesses to me, where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the othermost parts of the world. So far, they never got out of Jerusalem. Anybody want to hear the gospel? They had to come to Jerusalem. And now, because of the work of Saul uh, attacking the church, and after Stephen's death, now they're scattering out into the regions. Instead of having people coming to them, they are being sent out. And what are the regions they're sent out to? Judea and Samaria. They still haven't gone very far. Some of them are going to reach as far away as Antioch to the north, um, but pretty much they're staying in the region. Um, there's 12 guys that aren't leaving. They're going to stand their ground in Jerusalem, and that's the 12 apostles. It says at the end of the verse. And then we come to verse 4, and again it says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere, pretending not to be Christians anymore. Is that what it says? Are you with me in verse 4? What did they do when they went everywhere? They preached. Now, I know that word has been used for just the guy up here stands in a pulpit with uh, reverend in front of his name and maybe a Bible degree after. Um, but uh, the word preach is the word proclaim. And it says they went everywhere preaching the word. They, meaning not the twelve apostles, right? Because they stayed in Jerusalem. Right? Twelve apostles still in Jerusalem. There's six of the seven. We're going to find out about one next week and be introduced to Philip, the second of the seven. Um, And they have responsibilities. They're going to kind of travel around the area. We're going to find out in Judea and Samaria. But it says when they went everywhere, they proclaimed the word. Whether that should be capital W or not, we can discuss. But essentially, they're going to proclaim Christ. Wherever they go, they're going to preach this message. They're going to proclaim it. They are not going to hide and, and, and shutter their windows and, and sneak around. And, and they're, they're telling everybody they meet about Jesus Christ. They realize the ramifications. But right now, Saul is centered in Jerusalem. I'm not in Jerusalem now. I'm out here in the plains of Judea, whether I went north, south, east, or west from Jerusalem, whether I'm over by the Jordan or over by the Mediterranean Sea, whether I'm up in the mountains uh, of Horeb or whether I'm down uh, in the uh, southern mountains around the Dead Sea, um, wherever I'm at, I'm preaching Christ. Up in Samaria, stretching up a little farther north, um, we're preaching Christ. Saul isn't around, and, and, and we have responsibility, all of us, to preach Christ where God sends us. You're not complaining about what they left behind. Remember that many of them didn't really come from Jerusalem. They're all kind of bottled up in Jerusalem. And because of the Pentecost, because of Passover, they were on pilgrimage there. They accepted Christ. They weren't in a hurry to get home. And so they just remember the list of all the people at Pentecost, where they were from, from all over. Well, they stayed there for months. Wanting to be taught the word. And now after some concentrated instruction, (laughs) remember daily from house to house, they're meeting. So every day they're in the temple being taught. 
These people don't have occupation there. They've taken pilgrimage there. They're caring for one another, meeting each other's needs. And now they're being scattered. And they're pretty much going to start heading home. And first place they're going to come to is Judea and Samaria. And they're scattered out in those areas proclaiming Christ. In the first phase of the gospel being sent out has not come to its end, but it's, it's now moved on. And the second phase has erupted. Not by the choice of the church, but by force. God has used Saul and the response to Stephen to force the church into the second phase. Phase one was Jerusalem. Phase two was Judea, Samaria. You've got to reach them for Christ. They have the word. They have the, the, a commitment to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, they, they have the law. They have the commandments. They have a, a, a leaning towards the truth. Um, they have been ministered to by Christ. They know Him. Um, there are individuals out there who have been healed by Him. There are, there are disciples out there that are, need to hear this full message. So phase two of the church's mission is abruptly opened up. Sadly, not by a plan of the church, but rather by a work of God through an agent that we would have wanted God to kill. Let's be honest. If we had lived in Jerusalem and had seen what Saul allowed to be done to Stephen, one of our seven, what he was doing house to house, our prayers would be something like, God, don't you have some spiritual commandos that could take this guy out? Come on, isn't that our honest response? Instead of recognizing that, Lord, what do you want us to do again? (laughs) We're not here to take people out. We're not here to be comfortable. We're not here to just coast into heaven. We're here with an assignment, a pretty significant one. And that assignment is, you have the words of life for this world. And you're the only ones who have it. The church is the only agent that God ever invested with the authority of the gospel. And they went everywhere preaching it. And shame on them that it took Saul to make that happen. But rather than trying to get rid of Saul, let's get on with what we're supposed to do. God can take care of Saul, and Stephen's prayer comes to completion, I believe, uh, with Saul's conversion. Lord, don't charge him with my death. By the way, Saul charged himself with these deaths later on in Philippians and in his testimony to others in Romans and other places. He charges himself. He says, I'm the worst of sinners. I had a lot to boast about, but all that is garbage. All the stuff that men boast over is garbage. I had all that. 
and all I was was the greatest enemy of the church. I did the most despicable things against God's people. And Saul became Paul and still charged himself with those crimes against God's people. But God didn't charge Saul. God says, I'm going to keep poking you. I'm going to keep prodding you. Stephen wasn't the last. He was the first. He wasn't the last one that Saul encountered that prayed this kind of prayer, that spoke this way, who who saw what Stephen saw. Um, the indication is, is that God brought a lot of these people that Saul was arresting and Saul kept hearing this testimony and these people are praying for me and these people keep, they're just more than happy to die for him. They're more than happy to be in prison. They don't fight me. They don't, they don't try to, none of that. They run away and hide. They run away, but they don't hide. They run away and talk. Uh, they, and all these are just going to be goads when Jesus talks about why are you kicking against the goads? Those little prods, jab, jab, jab. Stephen's prayer, Stephen's vision, Stephen's message, Stephen's death are prods on the heart of one man. Many others, I'm convinced as well, but we know of one man. And when we begin to approach our Christian walk and recognize that if, it's, if it causes discomfort for me so that God can prod the life of even the one who is causing my problems. Instead of praying against those people, why are we praying for those people? Instead of avoiding them, do you recognize the necessity that that you need to encounter them for their good? Because without you, there are no prods in their life. And we don't really drive oxen, so we don't understand what prods are for, do you? You know, the prod is a pointy thing that jabs you so that you keep moving and keep moving in the right direction. If you try to turn your head this way, the prod hits you right in the neck. You try to go that way, you get jabbed on that side. It keeps you straight, and he's got one back there prodding you in the backside to keep you going forward, to send you in the right direction. And that while... Saul thinks he's doing the injury. In fact, the real ones who are the prods, who are the pointy sticks that are jabbing at the heart of Saul are these Christians who are enduring incredible abuse with joy. And in the midst of all that abuse, they're praying for their abuser by the name of Saul. The guy we want commandos to take out. And we'll applaud if he's gone. You see, our discomfort, our abuse may be the prod that's required to penetrate a hard-hearted, prideful, arrogant, angry man. It may take that much to bring him to Christ. Even multiple Christians dying. And so when we pray for those being persecuted, 
let's not lose track of the fact that everywhere persecution of the church has arisen, the gospel has multiplied. And maybe one of the reasons that Satan has changed his tactic in our country and in the Western world and moved from assault to a subtle lulling to sleep is that he's learned. See, we wouldn't want to go to church where there's not padded chairs and air conditioning in the summer. That's too much suffering. Let alone endure what the church is enduring here and what the church and other countries are enduring and that we just close ourselves off from and pretend it's not happening because no one in the mainstream media is going to tell us about it. Or perhaps because we kind of like being comfortable. The church was comfortable. All their needs were being met. There was a little complaining. That was addressed. Things are going well. And then that crazy guy Stephen had an idea that there's a whole people group over here that we aren't, we're just ignoring. We gotta go reach them. And then havoc breaks out. And now, we are being scattered across the earth to reach everyone. And even as that goes on, God is working in one man's heart. One man's heart. And if no one else came to Christ at the end of Stephen's message, Stephen himself provides these prods that don't go away. So that when Saul is on his way to Damascus, Jesus says, it's hard kicking against prods, isn't it? It hurts. They keep prodding you, you keep kicking because you're stubborn, ornery, arrogant. And what does it take to reach stubborn, ornery, arrogant people? Christians suffering with joy from those very same stubborn, ornery, arrogant people all the while praying for them. That's the testimony of Stephen. And that's the calling of God upon our life and ministries. Is not to go out there and be soothing oil for them, but rather to be prods. Not by making them feel bad directly, but maybe for allowing them to make us suffer. And this is essentially when Christ says, you know, if they want to hit you on one cheek, turn the other one to them. Why? To prod them to Christ. That they will know that they have done injury to the righteous. Because in our society, people don't feel their sin. They don't. Not normal sin, not lying. Lying isn't hardly a sin. That's applauded by our country. We elect people to office for doing it. We reward it. Lying's not a sin anymore. It's not lying's not something to feel bad about. It's something to gloat over. Ha, huh, I tricked them, those idiots. They believe me. So how far does sin have to go before people's hearts start to 
condemn themselves. I will contend with you that at this point in our society, it takes this level of sin to prod them to Christ. They have to be committing this kind of violence, this kind of evil against righteous people for their hearts to start sensing guilt. And they need to do it before people not that are angry at them and cursing them, but rather people who are seeing heaven and smiling and saying, I'm ready. Uh, Oh, and please keep working on this guy that's killing me right now. This is what's going to prod their heart. Is when they strike us and we love them and say, if you need to strike me again, strike me again. If it's that's what it takes to for God to prod your heart into receiving Him, for you to actually finally start feeling guilty for something and realizing sin is sin. You see, Saul was self-righteous and most of the people he encountered are self-righteous not because they are doing good but because they've been convinced that everything they do is can't be bad. There's no such thing as sin. And so what does it take to bring them? They have to be immersed in greater and greater sin. And for the self-righteous Saul, the prods that God used were the prayers of the message of Stephen, and the countenance of Stephen. And this is what we need to present our enemies with. Prayers, willing suffering, a clear message, and a countenance that demonstrates we know who's on the throne of heaven. We've seen him there. And we want them to look that they might live. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We pray that we might have a different spirit with regard to our own lives and our enemies. Rather than wanting them judged, that we might want them saved. Give us that heart. It is not one that we naturally possess. So Lord, we pray that your Spirit might transform us. That we might have the heart of Christ for those who hate us. That we might love them. That you might use our relationship before them to prod them go in the direction of faith that you would have for them. We need courage in this, Lord, and we lack it. We know it. We're cowards largely with our faith. And we pray for boldness in these days. That when you come, you might find faith in this place at the very least. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.